When I was in college, I took my first ministry job as a youth pastor in Dothan, Alabama. The first night, uh, the big launch of this ministry I was responsible for, we had three students show up. They were paying me at the time $500 a month, and I couldn't believe that they were paying me that much money to do that. Uh, Just out of curiosity, how many of you have ever had the privilege of going to Dothan, Alabama? A handful? Yes. Okay, a few of you. Uh, For the rest of you, if you ever get the opportunity to go to Dothan, don't do that. Um, I'm just kidding. It's lovely. It's charming in like a Joe Dirt kind of way. Um, It's a really sweet place. Anyways, when I was on staff at this church, the pastor of that church used to tell this story uh, all the time about an instance that happened to him when he was a youth pastor. And I want to tell you that story this morning. The story goes like this. One night, he was about to lead a really big youth service, and he got an urgent phone call on his landline. Do you guys remember landlines? Okay, in his office, he gets a phone call on his landline. And on the other end of the line is the mother of one of the young girls in his youth ministry. And she is panicking and hysterical, crying on the other end of the line. What he learned on that phone call was that her husband, the father of the girl in his ministry, had been in a work-related accident that day and died. And the mom had been unable to get in touch with her daughter to let her daughter know that her father had passed away. Because this was back in the late 1900s before every 15-year-old girl had a cell phone. (laughs) And so she couldn't get in touch with her daughter to let her know. And so she knew that her daughter was headed to this youth event. So she called the youth pastor to let him know the news and asked him to tell her that news when she got there. So he has this information. He decides, I'm not going to tell anyone because I don't want it to leak out and get to her before I can get to her. So he decides to just hold on to this information. He's the only one at this event who knows what has happened. And he stands by the front door and he waits for her. Well, he is also preaching that night. And so as he waits for her, the music starts for the event and he knows that there are two songs and then he has to get on stage to preach. So here's the first song come and go, here's the second song start, and he's thinking, man, if she doesn't get here soon, I'm going to have to get on stage and preach, and I haven't shared this news with her. So he waits until the absolute last minute, the music stops, and he puts on his microphone, and he walks on stage and begins preaching. Well, about halfway through his introduction, guess who walks in the back door? This young girl. And he says that as she walked in, she was with a bunch of her friends, and she was just giggling and laughing and having a good time. And as he's preaching that sermon, all he could think, all he could think was, I have information that when she hears it is going to transform her life. I have knowledge of a truth that when it leaves my lips and hits her ears, her life will be forever altered. Now, I think about that story quite often. And the reason why I share it this morning is because it really overlaps with something we're going to talk about today. As followers of Jesus, you and I possess a very powerful message, except our message isn't one of pain and death. Our message isn't one of sadness and devastation. Our message is one of joy and celebration. Our message is a message of life and resurrection. Our message, as we've said over the last three weeks, is a message of a triune God who has invited us to experience his relational love. And this message that we carry around, it's not just for one person. It's a message that is for everyone. Let me say that again. It is a message that is for everyone. Every single person you come into contact with is someone for whom Christ died. 
every person at the gym, every coworker, every classmate, every ex-boyfriend or ex-girlfriend, every person who cuts you off in traffic is someone for whom Christ died and someone who needs to experience the relational love of God. And if you are a Christian, you walk around every single day possessing a truth that could change their life for eternity. The question is, how are you going to steward this? What are you going to do with this powerful message that you carry around each and every day? If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Matthew chapter 28. Matthew chapter 28, while you're turning there, let me explain where we're headed this morning, especially for those of you who may be new this morning. Several weeks ago, we launched a four-week vision series where we have been talking about why we exist as a church. And we've been spending each week talking about a different aspect of this vision. But here's what we said on week one of the series. As Table Community Church, we exist to help every person experience, embrace, and participate in the relational love of the Trinitarian God. This is our North Star. This is the golden thread that weaves throughout everything we do as a church. Now, if that statement is confusing to you, we spent 45 minutes that first week of this series explaining it, so you can go back and listen to that. But here's what we said on that first week. If that is the mission of our church, how do we know when someone has actually done that? How do we know when we have done that as the church? How do we measure it? Because a mission statement without a way to measure the mission is just a fancy phrase. It means nothing. So what we said is this. We know that that mission is happening when someone or when you, when I, am living in right relationship in three areas of our life. In right relationship with God, in right relationship with one another, and in right relationship with the world. Or the words that we've been using to describe these for this series are communion, communion with God, community with others, and our commission into the world. So over these last few weeks, I preached on communion with God, and then another one of our pastors, Jordan, last week preached on community with others, and we will close out the series today by talking about our commission as followers of Jesus into the world. So here we go, Matthew chapter 28. We'll look at two different passages this morning. We're going to start in Matthew 28, and then we're going to flip over to Acts chapter 1, two passages that very clearly outline our commission or our marching orders into the world as followers of Jesus. So here we go, Matthew chapter 28. We'll pick it up in verse 16. These words will be on the screen if you don't have a Bible. It says this, now the 11 disciples went to Galilee. And Stop right there for a second. There were 12 disciples for most of the story, right? But here there are only 11. If you're new to the Bible, the reason there's only 11 at this point is because this is after Judas went AWOL. He's just gone at this point in the story. And so there are 11 remaining disciples. They have not yet appointed the 12th disciple or the new 12th disciple. And we imagine there are a host of other fringe followers of Jesus with them. So they all go to Galilee, keep reading, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. So just for context, Jesus has risen from the dead. He has appeared to a bunch of people thus far. The gospels are full of stories of Jesus appearing to people. So he has already appeared to the women at the grave. He's already appeared to Thomas. He's already appeared to the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. And now he appears to these disciples on a mountainside in Galilee. Verse 17, and when they saw him, They worshipped him, but some doubted. Now, for some reason, this one made me laugh this week. So here's Jesus. Scholars estimate it's about two weeks after his resurrection, after he rose from the dead. And some disciples, the text says, do the appropriate and understandable thing you should do when you see someone who was formerly dead, you know, alive and walking around. They worship. But then the text says, some doubted. 
which is crazy to me. Like they, they look at him, they look at Jesus who used to be alive and then was definitely dead and now he's alive again and everyone around them is bowing down in worship and they're like, nah, it couldn't be him. <laughs> That's crazy. Verse 18, and Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Now, we don't have time to camp out here, but this, this line is insane. Jesus says, all authority, all authority, the authority to speak things into existence, the authority to tell oceans where to stop, the authority to command demons to flee, the authority to call angels down from on high. It was all given to him. The divine passive tense of the verb here, given to me, implies that it is the Father who freely gives all this authority to the Son. And Jesus took all that authority, all of that authority to do whatever he wanted. And Hebrews 12, 2 says that for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. He took all of that authority. He could have stopped it at any moment. And Isaiah 53 says, he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Like a lamb led to the slaughter, he opened not his mouth. That is insane when you think about it. Verse 19, he says, Jesus, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Now it's important to note, and this gets lost in the English translation a bit, there's only one imperative verb in this sentence, which is to make disciples. It's, so go is not actually a command. It's more accurately translated as you are going, make disciples of Jesus. But he doesn't stop there. Jesus keeps talking, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now, in the Greek, the word name is singular. So you're to baptize them in the singular name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And the church, from this moment forward, started baptizing new converts to Christianity in this way. They would baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit. When we baptize people here at our church, and other, as you notice, if you've ever attended a baptism gathering, uh, I normally don't do those baptisms. We ask them to invite the person who was very influential in leading them to Christ to baptize them. And the only instruction I give those people is you can say kind of whatever you want to that person, but when you baptize them, you baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And this is why. Now, full disclosure here, there is debate about whether or not we should do this because other places in the Bible, the book of Acts, you see the disciples baptizing people in the name of Jesus alone. But we know that the early church didn't practice it that way they practiced, they knew nothing other than baptizing people in the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit after the book of Acts. One way we know this is from an ancient document called the Didache. The Didache was like an early church manual. Think of it as like a church planting manual written by some of the earliest disciples. It was written at and around the same time the New Testament was written. So it's a very reliable ancient document. It begins by saying this, the teaching of the Lord to the Gentiles by the 12 apostles. So it's basically a how-to guide. And in that how-to guide, they describe how to baptize people. And they say this, but concerning baptism, but concerning baptism, thus baptize ye. Having first recited all these precepts, baptize in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit in running water. Now that last line there is a little confusing. If you've ever wondered why we leave the hose running in the baptismal tank, this is why. Just kidding. We <laughs> There are people, though, this is like a legitimate theological debate. This is, this is what you talk about in seminary. People debate about whether or not a baptism is legitimate if the water is not running. And so there are a lot of people out there who would say if, the, if you're not baptized in a river or a creek, it's not a legitimate 
baptism. True story, when I was in college, I used to visit uh, my friends up in Birmingham, Alabama at a school called Sanford University, and they all attended a megachurch up there that had literally built a creek kind of through their sanctuary. And when I say creek, think lazy river. That's basically what it looked like. They built a lazy river through their sanctuary so that they could baptize people in running water. Now, we don't land there, obviously, as much as I would love to have a lazy river in a church building someday. (laughs) It would just be so wonderful. But here's the point. I don't want that line to distract you. I want to acknowledge it, but not let it distract you. The part I want you to see is that the early church continued this Trinitarian understanding of baptizing people into the faith. And this is really important. Apologist and author James White talks about the importance of this. He says, We see then why baptism in the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit is so important. Because this is baptism in the name of our God, the triune God we worship and serve and adore, the triune God who has saved us, the Father, source of all, eternally gracious, the Son, Redeemer, who left the glory of heaven to save his sheep, Spirit, indwelling comforter, who makes the truths of the Christian faith alive in our hearts. What other name would we wish to bear than the triune name of Father, Son, and Spirit? Now, back to the text. Baptize them in the name of the triune God, verse 20, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So go and do this. Go and live this out. Go and tell others about Jesus. And Jesus says, I will be with you in that forever. Now, turn over to Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1, if you have your Bibles open, I want to show you another passage that kind of outlines this. Jesus here is about to ascend to heaven. This is the last conversation he will have with his disciples before he sends the Holy Spirit in Acts 2. So Jesus, in Acts chapter 1, we read this. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? In other words, and they're still thinking like political power. They're not fully understanding what this kingdom's going to look like. Jesus, when are you going to do that thing that we've been asking you about for so long? He said to them, verse 7, he said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. In other words, it's not for you to figure out. And then look at the contrast in verse 8. But, or rather than that, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Now, if you're new to the Bible, think of what Jesus just said here in concentric circles. They're, they're in Jerusalem, and the gospel is going to go forth, and it's going to go from Jerusalem to Judea, Samaria, and then ultimately to the ends of the earth. So, according to Jesus, it's really simple. When the Holy Spirit comes into our life, we are, from that moment forward, supposed to be what? witnesses, witnesses. Now the word witness in the original Greek means basically what you imagine it means. Imagine you're in a courtroom and a judge asks you to the stand and you come up there and you have to answer questions, not about what you think, not about your theories. You answer questions about what you have heard, what you have seen, what you have experienced. And Jesus says, my followers are witnesses. They are to tell others what they have heard, what they have seen, and what they have experienced. Keep reading. And when he had said these things, verse 9, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. And I love this picture of the disciples. Here they are standing on a hillside in between two of the most important historical events in Christianity. 
They're standing between the ascension of Jesus and his future return. And they have one charge, one command, one commission. Go be witnesses about what you have seen until I return. And we know that these disciples actually did that because we are sitting here right now. Think think about what had to happen from this moment that we just read to the moment we're sitting in. They went out and told some people who went out and told some people who went out and told some people. Someone eventually got on a boat and came here and told some people who told some people who told you. And your life was changed. And now you're gathered here. So they, they carried it out. And they have, in a sense, handed the baton to us and said, go, run your race. Tell others now. Now, let me try to pull these two passages together with one really good quote from Christopher Wright in a beautiful book called The Mission of God's People. He says this, the mission of God's people then calls them to participate in a long and rich tradition of sending and being sent that originates with God, the Holy Trinity. The God of the Bible is the sending God, even within the relationship of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So the question that we must ask, the question you should ask every time you read your Bible is, so what? So what? Well, friends, here's the reality. You and I, most of us anyways, know the goodness and sweetness of communion with the triune God. Most of us understand the beauty of community with other believers. And we, as we have seen, have been commissioned out into the world to tell others about this good news. And this good news we proclaim is the news of every person experiencing, embracing, and participating in the relational love of a triune God. That is the gospel. Now, English pastor Glenn Scrivener says it like this. I thought this was such a beautiful articulation of the gospel. He says, without the Trinity, all you could hope for would be submission to a king, orders from a master, or acquittal before a judge. And all of those would be really good and beautiful things. But with the Trinity, you can enjoy adoption into the eternal life of God. Don't strip the heart of the gospel from your message. Be Trinitarian. Be explicit about the Trinity, the triunity of God and the triune shape of his good news. The Trinity does not needlessly complicate. When proclaimed rightly, it clarifies, compels, and captivates. This is our charge. This is the commission that has been given to us. But for some reason, and maybe I'm showing my cards a little bit here, when we talk about this commission, or when we talk about making disciples, or when we talk about evangelism, It just, I don't know, it feels like a burden at times. In my faith journey, it's felt like a a chore. It's felt like one of those things that like weird Bible college students do. Since I'm telling stories about my college years, in college I took an evangelism class. I'm sure if you went to like University of Oregon, you didn't take an evangelism class. (laughs) But I did. And uh, the big crescendo of this class was uh, we learned how to tell the story of the gospel, we learned how to write our testimony, how to use the Evangel Cube and tracks and all this stuff. And, and then the big crescendo is for spring break, we took a road trip down to Panama City Beach, Florida, right in the middle of spring break. So when the rest, when every other college student in Florida is on the beach partying and drinking Bud Light, we are walking around with tracks asking people if they died tonight, did they know where they were going to go? 
And it just, I'll be honest, it just made me feel kind of icky. Like I didn't enjoy it at all. But this mission that we've been given, it should not feel burdensome. There's no need for it to feel icky. It should feel like a joy to be able to talk about Jesus. My great-grandfather, Charles Spurgeon, (laughs) one can hope, Uh, says it like this. This is so beautiful. If Jesus is precious to you, you will not be able to keep your good news to yourself. You will be whispering it into your child's ear. You will be telling it to your husband. You will be earnestly imparting it to your friend. Without the charms of eloquence, you will be more than eloquent. Your heart will speak. Your eyes will flash as you talk about his sweet love. Every Christian here is either a missionary or an imposter. You either try to spread abroad the kingdom of Christ or else you do not love him at all. It cannot be that there is a high appreciation of Jesus and a totally silent tongue about him. He continues, if you really know Christ, you are like one that has found honey. You will call others to taste of its sweetness. You are like the beggar who has discovered an endless supply of food. You must go tell the hungry crowd that you have found Jesus, and you are anxious that they should find him too. I love that definition of evangelism. It's just one beggar telling another beggar where to find food. Okay, so the question is, how do we do this? So if this is the charge, if this is the commission, if this is what we've been called to, how do we actually live this out as a church? There are five ways that we try to live this out here at Table Community Church. I want to walk you through these five ways. First, the first way we do this is by loving one another, by loving one another in community. The first way we tell the world about the love and the goodness of a triune God is by simply applying what Jordan preached about last week. See, this is really important. Community with one another is not the end goal. Community, you and I in fellowship with one another, is not the end goal. It is simply a means to the end goal. The end goal, Jesus said it earlier, is to make disciples, to baptize them into the triune love of God, to help every person in the world experience and embrace and participate in the relational love of God. So the reason we push community so much here at TCC is not primarily because we want you to be cared for or to have people to study the Bible with or people to pray with, as great as those things are. The reason we push community so much is because we believe Genuine, loving community is the greatest evangelistic tool we have in a post-Christian, polarized, and divided world. There's a great story in Acts chapter 2 where the followers of Jesus are just living in this self-giving, caring, loving community. They're meeting each other's needs. They're supporting one another. They're having meals together. They're living out the type of community we preach about here. And they had a prophetic witness in their community. The text says in Acts chapter 2, day by day, the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. Jesus says it this way in John 13. He says, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. See, we can talk about hospitality as a means of evangelism, and we will in just a moment. We can talk about acts of justice and mercy as a means of evangelism, and we will in just a moment. We can talk about actually speaking the good news of Jesus And we will, but none of that really matters if we don't start here. If we can't get this right, then we have no business trying to do the other things. It starts with how well we love one another. They will know we are disciples of King Jesus based on how well we love our brothers and sisters in this faith family. So we have to start there. The second way we live this out is by practicing biblical 
hospitality, by practicing biblical hospitality. In the Greek, let me show you the word for hospitality. It's the word philoxenia. And in the Greek, it's a compound word. The first word there is philo. It's, uh, think of this uh, Philadelphia, it means brotherly love or the city of brotherly love for Philadelphia. Xenia, the second word there means stranger. Like think of xenophobia, the fear of strangers. So biblical hospitality, very simply put, is the love and care for the stranger. It's welcoming in the outcast, the broken, the marginalized into our lives and into our homes. Examples of this are all over the Bible. There are dozens of stories of Jesus extending hospitality to others in the Gospel of Luke is is a great example of that. Romans 12, 13, Paul tells us that we should seek to show hospitality. In both 1 Timothy and Titus, hospitality is listed as a qualification of elders. So in order to be a leader in the local church, you have to be hospitable. 1 Peter 4, 9, Peter encourages believers who are living in exile to show hospitality without grumbling. Over and over again in the Bible, we see that hospitality is not optional as followers of Jesus. It is intrinsic to following Jesus. Rosaria Butterfield says it this way in her beautiful book. She says this, radically ordinary hospitality. Those who live it see strangers as neighbors and neighbors as the family of God. They recoil at reducing a person to a category or label. They see God's image reflected in the eyes of every human being on earth. Those who live out radically ordinary hospitality see their homes not as theirs at all, but as God's gift to use for the furtherance of his kingdom. They open doors. They seek out the underprivileged. They know that the gospel comes with a house key. A few weeks ago, I had a moment standing out front greeting people where I was just overwhelmed with pastoral pride particularly around this issue. I was standing out front welcoming people as I do most Sundays, and I had three families back to back to back walk into the church, and all of them had a new foster child with them. The third person in that line was a single gal in our church named Amber. And Amber walked up, and she was wearing a baby, and she was holding the hand of not one, but two toddlers. She was fostering three (laughs) children by herself. And I just sat out there just overwhelmed with gratitude. Like this, this gal is living this out in such a beautiful way. The families that came before her, families that are sitting in this room right now are living it out in such a beautiful way. And here's why it overwhelmed me. Because it's literally a picture of the gospel. It's a picture of the good news of Christ. This is why Paul says in Romans 15, 7, therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. The reason we welcome others is because Christ has first welcomed us. That's the story of the gospel. The reason we invite the stranger into our family is because God has adopted us into his family. The reason we provide a seat for, at the table for our neighbor is because God provided a seat at his table for us. The reason we extend bold and generous and at times inconvenient and messy hospitality is because God first extended to us bold and generous and inconvenient and messy hospitality by welcoming us, the sinner, into his home. We must practice biblical hospitality. When we welcome the stranger, the outcast, the person in need, we tell them and we tell the world around us a story of welcome and inclusion into the triune love of God. Third, we do this by acts of justice and mercy. By acts of justice and mercy. In the Bible, from beginning to end, you cannot escape how often God is described as a God of just and merciful. How often he calls his people 
to worship him through acts of justice and mercy. In other words, we cannot be faithful to the triune God of the Bible if we do not also at the same time pursue justice in the world. If we want to be a city or church that impacts the city, we must keep justice and mercy as a focus. In his book, Generous Justice, Tim Keller shares how justice and mercy work lays the foundation for evangelism in a city. He says this, when a city perceives a church as existing strictly and only for itself and its own members, the preaching of that church will not resonate with the outsiders. But if neighbors see church members loving their city through astonishing, sacrificial deeds of compassion, they will be much more open to the church's message. Deeds of mercy and justice should be done out of love, not simply as a means to the end of evangelism. And yet, there is not a better way for Christians to lay a foundation for evangelism than by doing justice. And this should be a defining characteristic for our church in this city. I've shared this story uh, a lot over the last seven years as a church, um, and I will continue to share it probably every year until I am no longer the pastor here someday in the future. In the mid-1800s, there was a a church in London called the London Metropolitan Tabernacle. The pastor was uh, the guy I quoted earlier, Charles Spurgeon. And this church is right in the heart of London, right at the end of the Industrial Revolution. So this was a time in history when people were fleeing from the farmlands of England to the city by the droves. But the city wasn't prepared for the influx of people. So almost overnight, London becomes this city that's full of crime and poverty and slums. Disease was rampant. Death was all over the place. The widow and the orphan population increased dramatically in just a few short years. So as a result, many churches do what churches in America do when the inner cities become ridden with crime. They fled to the suburbs. But Spurgeon made a different choice for his church. He decided that rather than turn his back on the city, rather than run from the pain and the darkness, they would stay and they would be a church for the city of London. And they did just that. And they started doing acts of justice and mercy in the city. Here are just a few things they did. They opened dozens of low-income housing complexes They built homes to care for the widow and the elderly. They opened orphanages and started adopting kids that had just been left on the streets. And here's what's crazy. Over time, the Metropolitan Tabernacle began to have an incredible influence on the city of London, not only at a theological or a spiritual level, which is obviously the most important, but also at an economic level, at a physical level, at an emotional level, so much so that it was often said that if the Metropolitan Tabernacle of London were to close its doors, and the people of that church moved out of the city, the city of London would have wept. I remember hearing this story before we ever planted this church and thinking to myself, I want to be a part of a church like that someday. I want to be part of a church that if a need arose in our city, the first thing the mayor or city council did was to call us with that need. I wanted to be a part of a church that lived out its mission in such a way that if we were to close our doors and all of us were to move out of the city, that the city would weep, that it would have an incredible impact on the city if we were suddenly not meeting needs anymore. I wanted to be a part of that type of church. And by God's grace, we have moved the needle in that direction, but we are far, far from where I want us to be someday. So we must continue to do acts of justice and mercy. Fourth, We live out this mission by living in such a way that makes people ask why. Live in such a way that begs the question why. 
Peter says it like this in 1 Peter 2. He says this, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And pay attention to these last two verses. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God. Let me restate what Peter's saying here. Because you are a chosen race, because you are a holy nation, because you are a royal priesthood, actually live like it. Actually behave like a holy nation. And I would say the same to us. Because we have been redeemed, because we have been forgiven, because we have been called out of darkness and into light, let's act like it. Let's practice forgiveness. Let's exude the fruits of the Spirit. Let's live differently. Let's resist the cultural idols of our day. Let's bow down to no other God besides Jesus. We should live in such a way that makes people confused. You guys know, like, sometimes you do something and a puppy will just look at you, like, just tilt your head like that. Like, I don't really understand what you just did. We should live in such a way that everyone around us just looks at us like, like a confused puppy. Like, I don't know if I understand that. Dr. Tim Keller, who's done fantastic writing and preaching on how the early church grew so quickly, he basically credits the growth of the early church to this very point, that they lived in such a way, it was so countercultural to the age they were living in. He argues that the Christians of the day lived in such a countercultural way that it forced the world to notice them. He says this, and it's a long quote, but hang in there, it's really good. He says, the early church was a unique kind of human community that defied categories. It had at least five elements. Number one, it was multiracial and multi-ethnic. Number two, a strong commitment to caring for the poor and the marginalized. Number three, non-retaliatory. It marked by a commitment to forgiveness. Number four, strongly and practically opposed abortion and infanticide. Number five, revolutionary regarding sexual ethics. Each of these five elements was there because Christians sought to submit to biblical authority. And he goes on to say this, these, so think about those five categories, these are just as category-defying today, both offensive and attractive. The first two views, ethnic diversity and caring for the poor, sound, quote, liberal. And the last two, abortion and sexual ethics, sound, quote, conservative. But the third element, forgiveness, of course, sounds like no particular party. Churches today are under enormous pressure to jettison the first two or the last two, but to not keep them all. Yet to give up any of them would make Christianity the handmaid of a particular political program and undermine a missionary encounter. Now, I hesitated to use this quote because I didn't want to sound like I was making a political statement because I'm definitely not even attempting to do that. I just think it highlights something really profound and beautiful. When we live in a way that is in accordance to the way and the ethic of Jesus in every area of our life, it will make the world around us go, huh? What? Why are you doing that? Fifth, lastly, we proclaim the good news. We speak it. We preach the gospel. Romans 10, 14 says it like this. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? At the end of the day, loving each other in community is not enough. Extending hospitality to the stranger is not enough. Acts of justice and mercy is not enough. And living a Jesus kingdom-centered ethic is not enough. At some point, 
We have to speak the good news of Jesus. Now, you may be thinking, well, Justin, that verse says someone has to preach, and I'm not a preacher. That's your job. That's why we pay you. And that would be true if it weren't for the rest of the Bible. (laughs) Which says all of us have a responsibility. This is our, if you're a follower of Jesus, this is on you. It's not just my responsibility. It's not our elders' responsibility alone. It's not our staff or our deacons. It's all of our responsibility. It's a task given to each one of us. Pastor David Platt says it like this. At this moment, while you read this sentence, men and women around the world are being saved from their sins through the proclamation of the gospel. At this moment, people are being delivered from addictions and healed of diseases. At this moment, brothers and sisters are advancing in the gospel, the gospel in power amid unreached people groups. All of this is happening right now because the Spirit of God has been poured out on all his people all over the world. And he continues, listen to this. Let us not then be so foolish as to confine the work of the Spirit to one professional speaking in one place at one time of the week. Let us not be so unwise as to bank the spread of the gospel on a certain person at a certain place when all week long the Spirit of God is living in every single man and woman of God, empowering each of us to advance the kingdom of God for his glory. May this be true of us. May we embrace this commission may we see the kingdom of God advance in this city. As we wrap up this series, I I just want to speak a word to you as your pastor. We have been at this whole church planting thing for seven years now. Seven years of seeing God move in this city, seven years of seeing God move in this faith family. We have seen dozens of baptisms. We have shared countless meals together. We've seen like 9,000 babies dedicated. (laughs) And these seven years have been, for a variety of reasons, some of the most challenging and also some of the most beautiful years of my life. Pastoring and leading you all is one of my greatest joys. And here's why that is so exciting for me personally. Because it feels like we're just getting started. In so many ways, it feels like these first seven years have kind of been a warm-up for what God is going to do in the decades to come. And if God allows it, and I pray he does, if God allows it, we will get to spend the next several decades seeing the gospel transform this city and the area around us as we commune with God, as we enjoy community with one another, and as we live out the commission that has been given to us to make disciples of all people. As we prepare our minds and our hearts for the tables of communion, I want to remind us one more time in this series why we exist as table community. We exist to help every person experience, embrace, and participate in the relational love of the Trinitarian God. That is why we exist. And if you hear nothing else I say today, please hear this. The reason we come to the tables of communion every week is to remind ourselves that this is only possible It is only possible to experience, to embrace, to participate in the relational love of the Trinitarian God because of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Brothers and sisters, as you come to the tables, I pray that you know how deeply loved you are by God. And I pray you understand that it is God himself who invites you to these tables to taste and see that he is good.